I gritted my teeth and peeled them off. The heavy weight I was carrying had expanded my feet laterally, the compression of my boots compounding the excruciating pain. I could feel my heartbeat in my wounds. I took them off and pushed forward. The patchy snow on the trail numbed the raw flesh on my bare feet, offering a brief reprieve in a trail of bloody footprints. Holy shit! (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, when you read it out loud, it sounds... uh... (laughs) Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the show. This is the Into the Wilderness podcast. I'm your host, Byron Pace. It is the, I don't even know what day of the week it is right now. It's the 23rd of March, uh, which is a Tuesday, 2021. My apologies for this show going out late. Um, This last week, two weeks actually, has just been insane. A lot of very late nights working, and I just started filming a new documentary for the Atlantic Salmon Trust, looking at tracking projects on salmon on the east coast and west coast of Scotland. And so uh, my day yesterday started at like 4.30 in the morning and ended up at midnight when eventually I got home uh, from day one of filming. Uh, And so I never managed to finish editing this podcast and putting it together on Sunday night before I left, because as always, when getting filming gear together for a project, it should have only taken a couple of hours and it basically took me all of Sunday. And also because I haven't actually filmed that much recently uh, because COVID had everything shut down. So this is the first big bit of filming I've gotten. I had to remember how, where the record button was uh, on, my, on my film camera. Uh, but we got there in the end and this is a day late. Well, we're talking about uh, podcasts being late and uh, the actual format of the show and what the plan is for this year, uh, regular listeners may have noticed that we reverted back to a show every two weeks, a couple of weeks ago. Um, don't worry, you are going to get your full complement because we we, uh, we were releasing shows every week for a whole year. From basically a year ago, probably this week, I started putting out a show on the in-between weeks because for four years, we had always been a podcast that was out every two weeks. And then COVID hit, I had some time, and I'd always wanted to do a show a week. And so I used that time to do it. And it was a lot of fun. And we were doing these short episodes, mostly science shorts, really digging into the science behind conservation. That was the kind of the theme and the format of those episodes. And I really want to keep doing them. Uh, Time has been a little bit of an issue as things have started to get busy again. And so what we're doing is we're teaming up with different partners for these extra episodes. And we're going to do them in sets of um, probably half a dozen, so a series of six episodes. So you will continue to get conversations like the one you're about to hear today, which, by the way, is amazing. I was so energized after my conversation today, and you're going to hear all about my guests in just a couple of minutes. Uh, So we're going to keep doing those every two weeks. And then... I'm going to work throughout the year on these these different series. So the first series is going to actually be with the Atlantic Salmon Trust or in collaboration with the Atlantic Salmon Trust, who I'm doing this filming project with. They're going to be much more highly produced shows. There's going to be a lot of recordings from in the field while people, people are actually working on real-life conservation projects. Uh, and then we're going to interview different scientists and experts and people in the field from around the world and bring you six shows back to back, which are all going to be probably be about 30 minutes long uh, on very specific topics. Uh, and I'm really excited to do that. I think it's a, it's a really interesting way to tackle uh, doing extra shows on top of these, these longer form conversational type formats that I really enjoy having. So you have that to look out for. And I'm already in conversations 
uh, with another partner uh, with in collaboration with Modern Huntsman as well uh, to bring another half a dozen on, on a, a totally different set of topics. So those are going to be starting pretty soon. But for the next month or two months, just well, because there's going to be a lot of field prep to get those together and a lot of production time that hasn't gone into the, the previous episodes that you've heard. Uh, so for one or two months, possibly three, but I'd like to try and get these out fairly as soon as I can, actually. Uh, you're going to be listening to one show every two weeks. And then uh, and then there's going to be so many shows that you're not going to know what to do with them. So thank you very much for tuning in every, well, what is now going to be every two weeks. And thank you so much for all of the support of everybody up to this point. I hope that you're still enjoying the shows. It's been quite a few years now um, since we've been doing these. And I guess some of you have been there since the beginning. I always want feedback. So please reach out, podcast at paceproductionsuk.com. Tell me what's on your mind. Tell me what you like. Tell me what you don't like. And I will try and make it happen. If you have suggestions for guests, well, I always try and get them on. Uh, probably like one in every four guests is a suggestion from uh, podcast listeners. So don't uh, worry about reaching out. I absolutely want to hear from you. And actually, it keeps me going. Hearing from podcast listeners is one of the main things that keeps me doing this. Uh, while we're talking about support of the show, of course, I have to shout out the top tier Patreon supporters for this month. Richard Stevens, Richard McNeil, Ronnie Speakman of RDContracting.co.uk, James Marchington, the guys at South Ayrshire Stalking, Josh Starling, Thomas Cameron, Mark Zabrowski, the team at Galax Clothing, and our latest top tier supporter of the podcast, Colin Knight. Welcome, Colin, and thank you so much for doing that for supporting in the top tier if you would like to support the podcast head over to patreon.com forward slash Byron Pace you can have a look at all of the tiers there and um, yeah head over and support the show in fact for the competition for this show in collaboration with our partners Modern Huntsman we are working on volume 7 right now I am very, very excited for those of you who don't know I'm the conservation editor for that publication uh, there's some extremely cool things going to be happening with Modern Huntsman over the next couple of months. Uh, but I, if you would like to win a copy of the latest volume, which is volume six, Resilience, then I'm going to, we, we change this every week. So the competitions change. And it's very, very rare that I make this only open to people who are on Patreon. Uh, I think I've probably done it once, maybe twice before in five years. Uh, but if you would like to be in with the chance of winning a copy of Volume 6, I will randomly select one of my Patreon supporters in the next two weeks. So before the show comes out in two weeks' time, I will pick a Patreon supporter. So if you are already a Patreon supporter, it might be you. If you'd like to be in with a chance, head over to patreon.com forward slash Byron Pace and uh, join one of the tiers, which can be as low as like a dollar a month. And then you will be in with a chance of winning your own copy. What I also have on Patreon right now is I'm going to start uh, selling very selected prints from different places that I've been around the world while I've been working. And the print that I have, the, the first print that I'm going to make is going to be the, it's, it's very appropriate to what I was talking about with the new series coming up with the Atlantic Salmon Trust is going to be two leaping salmon that I photographed on the North Esk at the end of last year. Uh, currently, it is available on Patreon to Patreon supporters for the cost. I don't know exactly what the cost is going to be yet because I haven't 
uh, reached out to the printer to work out what it's going to cost. But whatever it costs me to post it to you and print it, if you're a Patreon supporter and you want one, I am going to send you one probably next month. And then in the next couple of weeks, I'm actually going to put it on the website. So if you'd just like to buy that print, you will also be able to do that. Uh, so little perk there. And I'm going to probably do that with different prints that I that I put up for sale over the next year is put them up on Patreon first for the podcast supporters. And if you want one, you'll get you can get a copy of the, this limited run just for the cost of it and a thank you for supporting the show. And then I'll open it up to people who maybe don't even listen to the podcast, but would like the print and would like to buy it. Uh, a couple more things before we jump into this. The winner from the competition two weeks ago, which was to share the podcast on some social media platform, the winner is Sean Rowan. Sean is a relentless sharer of the podcast. And uh, if you don't support the podcast on Patreon, that is the best thing that you can do for me is share the podcast wherever you use some sort of social platform. And if you don't use a social platform, then just rate and review it. The ratings really help because that helps bump up the podcast and recommend it to more people. And of course, reviews really help as well. And I think I'm going to start reading the odd review out. So uh, leave me a review and I'll read it out on the show. I'd love to hear from you. You've definitely heard enough from me because I'm holding you up from this incredible podcast with Laura Zera. She was on the TV show Naked and Afraid. She has an incredible article in Volume 6, Modern Huntsman. We start our conversation talking about writing letters. We uh, have this very disgusting conversation about picking up antler sheds and also shedding toenails. Uh, We dive into the idea of uncomfortable pleasures knife making, making the best use of the seasons that are around us, like the differences between the things that you would do in winter and summer. And then we tackle really deep philosophical questions like nature's morality and what the hell is persistence hunting? So that's the show. I'm going to hold you up no longer. Welcome, Laura Zera, to the podcast. Yeah, it's never good when it starts off and it says uh, critical error. This is all me. This is me in technology. This is my life story. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you have a I think you have an excuse there because it's not like you spend a lot of time in urban settings, I don't think. Right. This is this is true and I guess maybe this is why. It's just I don't know. I don't know what came first, the chicken or the egg. If technology hates me because I'm never around it, or if I just am never around it because technology hates me. But either way. <laughs> Fuck technology. Technology right. is just like, most, I mean, I mean, on a serious note, technology has improved the lives of many people. But also on a serious note, I think it's very damaging in modern society, the 100%. way that we embrace some technology. Well, it's it's crazy. So I'm I'm getting ready to head out on this trip, and I won't have cell service. I won't have you know obviously internet anything, and it's insane how stressful that is to other people. And the fact it sounds that like so, heaven. Oh, right. I know, <laughs> <laughs> but people are freaking out that they're not going to be able to get in touch with me. And it's so strange to me that we live in this world where we are at each other's fingertips all the time. If you send an email or a text and you don't get a response within like you know almost instantly. You almost are like, what's wrong? What's happening? Why am I not hearing back? You expect to have everyone kind of available all the time. And it creates, I don't know, for me personally, like I don't like upsetting people, disappointing people. I want to be there. But then how do you have boundaries and how do you ever have personal space? Like it's this weird world. It's this weird thing. And getting to go and disconnect for me is just like, oh my God, I need to recharge. I need that sometimes. I need that pure disconnect. And I always have done 
I, I think some of us should just go back to writing letters. I do it. 100%. Like, I, I, I post letters. Oh, I not love Not often it. and not to like that many people, <laughs> but I still write, uh, write letters and post it because I think that there is a, a certain gravity of words and meaning mm-hmm. that come across in a letter that you will never get with your thumbs on a phone. 100%. And I feel like, I don't know, I, people don't do that anymore. I have one friend, he's never owned a, a phone, a cell phone, anything, and he always wow. travels. And the only way that we can communicate is through old-fashioned letters. And it's That's great. Amazing. I never know where it's going to come from. I usually send it general delivery to wherever the last one came from. I don't know if he's going to get it or not, but there's like a beauty and a truth in the fact that you're sending these words out you're not even sure if they're going to get it, but if they do, it's so meaningful to like unfold the paper and like read written word that has so much, it's just, it's personality, you know, like I see his handwriting. I know exactly who it is. It's like, we don't have that anymore. Yeah. There is this sort of tactile character in it that is definitely, and I'm using it kind of as a metaphor for what we were talking about, which is this this idea that technology, in a way, rules and controls our lives and doesn't necessarily give us space to disconnect. But I I, lo- I love, I mean, I, I don't receive as many letters as I write, but I really appreciate the actual process of doing it yes. and sending it to someone. Well, and there's not, um, I feel like it gives you that space to write without expecting the immediate response of text. And there's a freedom in that because you really get to say what you're feeling and like be in the moment of of like articulating it as opposed to just like, okay, I'm sending this quick text and I'm getting a quick response and I have to respond immediately. It's like, no, you get to sit with your thoughts and it's this whole unfurling that's just really cool. It really is. And there's something that's sort of an unbounded romanticism about it as well, which, which appeals to a certain part of me. 100%. 100%. I am, I am with, it's kind of like, I don't necessarily like uh, audiobooks or uh, reading, um, not audiobooks, but reading a book on a, um, what do they call it? Like the Kindle things. Yeah. Like I have to have the book in my hand if I'm actually going to be reading it. And there's just oh, yeah. something about the process that takes you into it in a way that you can't get out of electronics. And I think anywhere we could implement that, but I kind of want to start a campaign to bring the letter back. We should do that. Let's start you know, a campaign. <laughs> right? Because then it's like people would mean what they say because it takes a lot more effort. It does take a lot more effort. And you're absolutely right there. I think that on two accounts, what you were saying just earlier about it giving you the time and space to really think about what you're saying without the immediate response. But you do mean what you say. And, and it takes time. And I like to, if I'm going to, I didn't anticipate we were going to talk for the first five minutes about writing Me letters. Me neither. <laughs> <laughs> but if you are going to, uh, if I'm going to write a letter, I try and do it in a cool location. So mm, I like, I'll take it with nice. me. Well, I have this, I have a book that I take a lot of notes in and stuff for all manner of things. And I will write in the back of that and rip a page out. So I could be, I've written letters on a boat off the coast of Angola headed yes. for the Congo River. I've written them on the side of mountains. I've written them in the back of pickups in, I don't know, in the arse end of, the cent- of Central Africa and posted those. And it's, people need to do it. I, I think it's a liberating experience. 
A hundred percent agree. I know. I I feel like I'm gonna just start doing that everywhere. Have like a mosquito just squish dead on the page. <laughs> <That's, laughs> or uh, we we actually did it. Um, well, the, our designer Elias he did it in some of the stuff for this volume, Modern Huntsman, which we're going to talk about because you're in here. And I was going to actually read an extract from this, but like uh, some of Peter Beard's work, where you would look through his books. And they actually had sort of stain marks of the bottom of a wine glass or the bottom of a, a bottle of wine where yes. it stained the page. And I love that Ugh. extra character that's in there because it's a little bit of the place that it was written. It captures a moment. There's something so beautiful about that. Yeah. Well, I, So my next phase, I've been thinking about this for a while because I do write the odd letter, is to get a wax seal. <gasps> oh, that is next level. I, it is next level. Wow. I feel like... Tyler like already has one. Like I now. may have stolen the what? idea from him. And he does of write he does. with... <laughs> of course he does. <laughs> I mean, I think that's how he starts every morning. I mean, Absolutely. melting a wax seal over a letter as he's writing with his 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 feather quill. <laughs> wow. I'm just, I'm really hurt that I haven't gotten one of his wax seal letters yet. So I'm going to have to... Really he's going to listen to this that. podcast. You're going to have to raise your game, Tyler. Get those letters <laughs> writing. He's never written one to me either. I'm feeling a little left out. I know. It's all right. We'll write letters to each other. It'll be great. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was I, I record the intros of this podcast after I do the interview, but I was thinking today when I was just reading up a little bit about you, because you and I have never met, but you've met some of the, the team at Modern Huntsman over in Montana, where you live, mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken. You're, yes. You live in Montana. I do. And I was trying to think, like, what is my intro to you going to be? And I think it's just going to be all-round badass human. <laughs> I think like I, I'm not. I don't think I need any more than that. And I thought I'd just read a piece here. I was flicking through. So your article is on starts on page two o six in the latest volume of Modern Huntsman. I'm just going to read half of the second paragraph. Several of my toenails were barely hanging on, having been pushed to almost right angles to my blood-filled pockets. I gritted my teeth and peeled them off. The heavy weight I was carrying had expanded my feet laterally, the compression of my boots compounding the excruciating pain. I could feel my heartbeat in my wounds. I took them off and pushed forward. The patchy snow on the trail numbed the raw flesh on my bare feet, offering a brief reprieve in a trail of bloody footprints. Holy shit. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, when you read it out loud, it sounds... uh... (laughs) (laughs) Were you reliving that when you were writing it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I like really put myself back in the moment. And I, I, I think the weirdest part about it is it got me really excited because I'm getting ready. That's the trip I'm getting ready to head out on right now. And actually, oh, so this is, is this like it, a year apart? Are you about to do this trip a year later? So this particular one, I haven't actually made it out. And like, I didn't get to go out last year because of the whole crazy state of the world oh, thing yeah. and not being able to travel. But um, this is yeah, this is this is that trip. And I get I got excited writing it because I was it's very strange, but it almost brings me back to all the good things. Like even though that part of it was just gnarly, it is still tied in my brain to all the amazing moments that I had out there on that trip. And like that was the price of admission and it was worth it. And I don't know, I think unless, you know, you're going out and doing it, that sounds insane. But um man, I just I I was writing it and I was thinking about it and I was like, I know this is gnarly, but it's seriously getting me all 
stoked to go out this year, even though I'm sure I'm going to shed all my toenails. That's kind of the, that's kind of the you were thing. Collecting, that, you were talking of shedding. You were collecting sheds, were you? Uh, yeah. So the, <laughs> the deer, the deer, the elk are all shedding their antlers and it's Laura's annual toenail shed. So I just, you know. <laughs> <That's> so disgusting. <laughs> it's pretty gross. Like I, yeah, my, my feet are, you know, they're not, I'm not going to be a foot model anytime soon. But, you know. <laughs> there's, there's this weird thing. And I've had this discussion with a few people about, uh, the way that we recollect experiences. And I heard someone talking about it, and I'd never really heard it in this phrase and uh, used in this kind of categorization before. And maybe some people are listening to this, so you don't know about that, like type one and type two fun. It's like those things existed before anyone decided to categorize them. And I can't remember which way around it is. But when you're reflecting on an experience, which was actually very painful and hard and arduous at the time, but because of that, when you reflect back on it, it has a whole other level and, and meaning in terms of the accomplishment. And I can think of, if I was to think of the top handful of experiences in my life, I would guess the vast majority of them had an element that was very uncomfortable in it and probably not that enjoyable in the moment. Mm-hmm. But it, it almost, it, it is, it's almost because of that, it becomes like a full body. It's like fully cerebral. It's fully physical. It, it kind of gets seared into your memory on a different level that it's weird that I look back, but I feel the same way. I mean, some of the most uncomfortable moments in my life are some of my favorite memories and some of the moments of like high comfort in comparison are just kind of like bl- they blend into the background and i don't know i think it's also cuz it's tied with this extreme but um i mean that's what i live for that's like what i seek out at this point when i'm in pain it's i mean and it just makes me sound like a total masochist which i'm not i'm not like yes i've loved being in pain but it it's just i don't know it's just like it means that you're living you're doing something you're using your body as it was uh intended or you know close to it anyway and so i just feel like you can have days that you lose in comfort in a, you know, in a comfortable environment doing mundane tasks and they all just blur together and fade into the background. Whereas moments like that, like I will never forget the details of it, like the specifics, how I can transport myself in my mind and really be in that moment is incredible. And yeah, I don't know. It's, it's worth it. There's a line in the article that you wrote, which I think encompasses that brilliantly, which is, I don't seek out these experiences because I enjoy pain or because I want to die. Rather, it's because I want to live. And there is so much in that because the sad reality is for a lot of people in the world, like the vast majority of people live very uneventful, mundane lives. And I, I, I don't mean that in a disparaging manner. I think it, I think it's sad and it takes a and, and it's not... I don't, it's not even individual people's fault necessarily. I think that modern society perpetuates a system that locks you into that, that is so hard to get out of and do something and create something that you're truly passionate about and you wake up every morning and really want to do it. Now, I mean, I, the vast majority of the stuff that I do, I love doing. It doesn't mean that I don't wake up some mornings and think, oh, there's a whole heap of stuff I just don't want to do today and I can't be bothered (laughs) because everyone's going to have that. It doesn't matter what you're doing. Even people who don't have anything that they necessarily need to do because they're inordinately wealthy. um, (laughs) Everyone's going to have those kind of down days or have to do stuff they don't necessarily want to do. But I just, 
I, I very quickly realized that to live a life where you have more days like that than days that you're truly excited about doesn't mm-hmm. sound like a good life to me. Absolutely. I, I do. I think it's really interesting to how our our world, I mean, I kind of feel like it works off of this instinct that we have to seek out comfort because our ancestors didn't have to seek out comfort or they didn't have to seek out challenge because they got it in their everyday lives. Whereas now we have to seek it out because comforts are normal. So it's like we're drawn to want to be comfortable, but we get stuck in it and our world just no longer provides the the life or death moments, the reality of like the struggle and, you know, having to push yourself. And I think that is why this year in particular was so interesting because it casts people out of their comfort zones. It threw them into this world that was no longer predictable and safe. And for a lot of people, it was the first time they'd found themselves in that situation. And, you know, people that I know that spend a lot of time in the backcountry or, you know, out just having experiences and living, they did much better mentally over the whole course of, you know, the state of the world right now, because they were used to it. You know, it's like training and, and having, um, that experience under your belt, it prepares you for the next time. And, you know, the first time is always difficult, but a lot of people I know have, have been seeking out that experience for years. And for some people, it's like they got thrown into it for the first time and it was just devastating. Yeah. I want to backtrack a minute and give a bit more context around our already very deep uh, an, an emotion-filled conversation that we've had. <laughs> uh, some people might know you from the TV, Naked yeah. and Afraid. How mm-hmm. on earth did that come about? And what was that experience like for you? Yeah. So I got a phone call. I was staying at a friend's house on a mountaintop. He only has a landline there. And uh, they basically, I have no idea how they tracked me down. And they wanted to know if I was was willing to film this this brand new show it was the the very beginning of it all. So how and long ago was that, Laura? That was two. Th- uh, let's see, yeah, twenty twelve. Um, okay. so end of twenty twelve, and then twenty thirteen, I filmed my first episode. So it was it was a while ago now, and uh, I never thought it would turn into what it was. I just kind of figured, all right, I, I get to go on this adventure in this weird place I've never been. Like this is a unique opportunity to have an experience because I'm all about collecting experiences. So I just I went for it, but I never really thought about the impact it would have as far as you know. I didn't have social media of any anything to to speak about really before. Um, that all happened. And I was like, there was no Instagram in 2012. Yeah, no, no. I think there was just Facebook and I was like, not that active. And it was one of those things where um, I'd been living this life. I'd been having all these crazy adventures for so long, but nobody, nobody knew about them. You know, I was just kind of living my life. I didn't even travel with a camera or anything. I didn't have a cell phone, none of that stuff. So, so before, hang on, I want to, I want to pause here. We're going to, we're going to pick up on naked and afraid, but expand on this you you'd live this life because i know about you jumping on trains and like traveling around the <laughs> around the country yes. Just expand yeah. on this a little bit give me a flavor of what this sort of formative years were for you yeah i mean basically you know grew up a weird kid spent a lot of time in the woods by myself um just loved being out loved getting close to animals and um but i was doing this you know all like after school or on the weekends and i just wanted to I got frustrated by the fact that I was an alien in that environment, that all these animals I loved so much could stay out there and exist there. And I had to go home and sleep in my bed and have my mom cook me dinner. 
So I just had this goal to become this feral animal and (laughs) (laughs) went to college basically like, I don't want to say I lost my mind, but I just, I realized what I wanted to pursue and that it wasn't in the classroom. So I moved out into the the Arboretum, which is like on my campus and I built a shelter and lived out there and ate roadkill and just dove in. (laughs) So hang on, you're busy studying. What are you studying? So I was studying, um, I went in as a zoology major and then I dropped that major and I was a double major in biology and anthropology. So I kind of self-created so, this major of... Um, that's quite uh, appropriate for your interests, though. Yeah, yeah. It was like ethnobiology. It was like people, nature, the science aspects of it. And then I had a minor in environmental science. So I was like, I'm going to get the most out of this, but also um, realize that the way that I love to experience it was not in a book and through writing about it. Well, I, I do love writing, but it was like, I needed more. You know, I needed to dive in. So, so you're studying while like camping out in the woods. Yeah, yeah. I was like, <laughs> in. Actually, my old college, my friend sent me a letter that, or an essay rather, that my old college roommate wrote about me that was kind of amazing because it was through her perspective of me showing up once a week to take a shower and like just, you know, being like covered in blood and dirt. And <laughs> it was like, that was my college. Everyone thought I was completely insane and they were probably right. But I was really happy. It was like the first time in my life that I was like, yes, this is the way. I want to be living. And um, it kind of spiraled out of control from there. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just imagining now uh, college life and, you know, like dating a dude. It's like, come back to my place. It's it's a shelter in the woods. (laughs) Totally. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like, yeah, you know, just go to the big tree, take a left, follow the deer trail. I mean, you mean you can't kill your own food? Okay, yeah, next. this isn't going to work. This isn't going to work. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this was, so clearly you had a, clearly you were pretty unusual. I mean, I don't think it's that unusual. I, t- I totally get it. I understand the need to embrace that. I didn't quite go as far as you when I was at university, <laughs> although I did pick the most rural campus that I could find in the whole country, which was built around a lake in the hills. That's pretty uh, this is this was clearly who you are. Like this was embracing yeah. the fabric of what makes you you. Mm-hmm. So now, like fast forward time, what happened between then and getting this call to go and do Naked and Afraid? Well, so I had you know all these college loans. I was spending a lot of money on this very fancy, nice school I was going to, and um, I basically would work for chunks of time. And then I still wanted to learn and travel and exist in this way and throw myself in the fire to, to really learn because I, I feel like that's how you learn. The greater the need, the greater the result. If you're putting yourself in these situations, that's where you're going to learn. And I didn't have any money because all the money I was making, I was throwing on my loans. So I was like, well, I'm not going to let that stop me. So that's kind of how the hitchhiking and the um, hopping of freight trains happened is I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to travel and I'm going to find a way to do it. And, um, you know, I realized I didn't need money. And so I did this all without money for, for years and years and um, started my, my hunting and foraging skills weren't quite up to par. So I was scavenging dumpsters and roadkill. And that's how I got my food. And I would travel. I, I had everything I needed. I mean, it, it sounds like I was really roughing it. But honestly, those were some of the best times of my life. Like I've been chasing that ever since because it was like ultimate freedom, living out of a backpack. You know, the road was my home. I would just, I would kind of 
be really free flowing. Whenever someone would pick me up, I'd kind of, I'd have an idea of where I wanted to go, but I would just let it play out and find myself in new locations and throw myself out and learn new environments and new ecosystems. And it really, you know, rounded out my skill set because I wasn't just good at one place, one location, one scenario. I, I did the urban thing. I did, you know, every major bioregion in the U.S. and down into Mexico. Um, and I, I lived it, you know, it was like, it made my brain, uh, kind of work in a different way because instead of seeing and focusing on what I didn't have, I would just focus on what I did have and how to make it work. And so it just really allowed me to be flexible and to have this kind of, you know, optimistic mind of like, all right, cool. Like I have these things at my disposal. How am I going to use them to best suit my needs? And, it was, I mean, it was addictive and I got addicted to the experience of, um, you know, appreciating what I had and making the most out of everything. And I mean, it was just an amazing time. Um, and then I get thrown out, you know, naked on an Island with a guy. And, um, I think the great thing about all that was it wasn't the first time I'd found myself in well, it was the first time I found myself naked on an island with a guy, but it wasn't the first time that I had been in a situation where I was completely out of my comfort zone. I was in an area I didn't understand, an environment I didn't know, and I had to make it work. So it it was, I think, a lot easier for me than a lot of other people who were going out there because it was just like, oh, cool, we're doing this. The only difference is there's a camera crew and I have to learn how to deal with that whole aspect of yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you had the perfect life prior to that experience to set you up to be able to really succeed and thrive and i haven't i i know the premise of the show i haven't actually seen any of the show and i haven't seen the episode that you're in great um, i haven't so even how, seen all my episodes so don't worry about that <laughs> <laughs> so give me give me the two minute rundown of what the, the the start to the end of that experience was like on the island yeah, I mean, just getting thrown out there and, and realizing that it was going to be harder than a normal survival situation, not only because I had to deal with a production crew that, I mean, you know, you go out hunting with one other person, it's harder. You go out with a, a crew, a very well-intentioned crew from LA that, you know, not necessarily is out hunting all the time. It adds all sorts of challenges, um, having to stop what you're doing for for interviews and, and you know, having having to repeat things and it was just a whole new experience. And then I was doing all this on my own for the most part. So learning to work with a partner that didn't have the same experience as me, didn't have the same outlook as me, didn't have the same strategy as me. It, it was definitely a really challenging aspect. I was like, man, if they just put me out here alone, like I could rock You'd be fine. better. Yeah. <laughs> what was your, what was your, the guy who you were on the island with? Did you guys eventually have good synergy or what was that relationship like? Yeah, it was it was good. I mean, in the beginning, it was just like he had a very different uh, experience. He was from um, Indiana, so he didn't have a lot of experience with the ocean. And he also, you know, and this is something I deal with frequently is people look at me and they think, you know, who's who's this girl and does she really do what she says she does? Or, yeah. You know. Did he think I, I'm, I'm the man, just stand back. Man will make fire. Yeah. Well, and I think <laughs> when he, he actually told me later that when he came in, he thought that the show was a setup and that I was just an actress and that I didn't have any sort of survival experience. That was when he first saw me, he's like, Oh, they punked me. Like they put me out here with this girl who's going to be <laughs> worthless the whole time. And so I kind of had to prove myself to him because he didn't necessarily know a lot about the ocean and I'd spent a lot of time there. So he was kind of like, you know, is she just telling me 
stuff she's making up to make me look like an idiot. And he was very standoffish. <laughs> so it was, it was really interesting, but eventually it, um, you know, we, we, it, the great thing is the camera crew leaves at night and you can just have really, you know, open, raw conversations about it and just really figure out where you're both at and kind of, um, you know, work through, work through all that and just connect on a, on a deeper level. So it was, it was good. And I think that's, that's kind of how life is, right? Like you don't always end up with the people that are going to have your same experience or same background, but that's kind of the beauty of it. And so figuring out how to work with someone's strengths, I mean, it was definitely a learning process, but it was, uh, it was, it was good. It was interesting. It challenged me in a way I couldn't have challenged myself. So I liked it for that. So what what happened for you after like after you came off and it all went to to air and you know people saw what you were like and the experience that you brought to the table on this island with nothing is that where your sort of career path started to change and you found more I was going to say civilized direction, but I don't know. You can call it whatever. whatever I'm trying. I'm, you have such a unique backstory prior to that. I don't know what the hell to call what you do now. <laughs> yeah, it was it was very interesting because I remember first seeing the episode, you know, with everyone else when it was on TV, and not knowing what to expect and feeling like, oh my god, I look terrible. Like they didn't show any of the cool stuff I did. They didn't show my no. successes. I was like, I look like. I am bumbling around like an idiot. Like I've never done this before. I was horrified. Why and did then, they edit it like that? Well, and I, I think that was a lot of my perception, but in reality, they can only fit in 43 minutes of a 21 day experience. So they can only fit in so much. So it was not like this intentional make Laura look terrible thing. It was just my own perception of what had happened and what I thought was important and cool. And then what yeah. they actually show, which is what was entertaining. Yeah. Right. And so it was like, Oh God. But then the feedback of it, people were reaching out to me like crazy. Like I didn't even know how to handle it. I signed onto my social media and I was like, Oh my God, you know, like thousands of friend requests on Facebook. Cause that was, you know, obviously the only thing. And it, I was overwhelmed. And the coolest part about it was the people that reached out that were like, you know, I've been struggling with this. I saw what you managed to go through and I'm inspired. And, you know, my daughter, here's a picture of her out in the backyard holding a spear because she wants to be like you when I grow up. When Too she cool. Up. And that part of it was like, it was super, it was super humbling, honestly, to be like, wow, like I, I'm, I've always shied away from that attention. I've always just, I don't know, I think ego is a really dangerous thing, but to be able to do something that actually is inspiring people to to get out because I don't I don't watch TV myself like I don't I don't know I don't even own a TV yeah no me neither and so it's it's really weird to think about um television being able to be a vessel to inspire people and that was the coolest side effect and then having people kind of join on on the social media thing it just it kind of motivated me to share more of what I was doing because I was like man if this is actually having a positive impact on on even one person's life then it's worth the weirdness of sharing my life with, you know, people who are strangers. And, uh, and, it, and it was really cool. And the, the people that I've met and the connections I've made through it, and even people I've, you know, kept in touch with on social media over the years, um, it's been really, it's been really cool. And it's actually inspired me to do more because you just kind of, you know, feed off of that energy. So it's, it's been amazing. And I think, you know, people first heard about me through the show, but, I, I don't think the show is by any means the the most interesting thing that I've done. It certainly wasn't the most challenging. It's it's not the most interesting. And I think that people have kind of 
picked up on that. So it was like this, do- it opened the door for me. And then being able to continue on and share my own adventures and what I'm really doing and what I'm really like has been a super surreal experience, but it's kind of led me down this path where, um, you know, I get to keep following what I love and, and, you know, hopefully putting some good stuff out there in the world too. So it's, it's kind of a win-win. I don't know. It's, it's been cool. So, so what is your, what is your focus these days? How do you, what, what do you do with, with your time to, to harness this desire and energy you have for the outdoors and challenging yourself? And, and that's like, I think the hardest thing to explain to people. I think that the question that I really, I'm so glad you didn't word it as, you know, what do you do now? Because I'm like, oh God, because it looks all sorts of, you know, it, it comes across in, in different ways. And I'm still focusing on feeding myself. I'm obsessed with learning. So like feeding myself with experiences that I'm constantly learning, constantly pushing myself, but then bringing that to people in different ways, whether it be through social media or public speaking or writing or teaching, you know, different workshops. Um, So it ends up looking a lot of different ways, but really it's just like, there's the part of it of me going out and doing it myself and sharing it. And then there's the part of me like, you know, giving it back in various ways and kind of like, Hey, look, like you've never been out camping before. Like you don't have to take it to this crazy level of extreme to start out, but like get out there and and this is how you can do it. And so, um, yeah, giving that people that confidence and inspiration to just go out and push themselves a little bit and experience things they haven't. You don't live in a makeshift shelter for 365 days of the year. Do you have like, you you have a normal house somewhere or a cabin maybe yeah. with a, with a roof and windows and a door. Yeah. It's super weird. I'm inside right now <laughs> and having like, I own a computer, which is really strange. And you know, it's, it's not a place that I'm obviously at every night. I still travel all the time and I still consider my home to be like under the, this tree out in my favorite wilderness. And that's like what I consider home, but I do have a base now where I can come back and where you've you got know, your shit. Like, I, I, that's where I keep my shit. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know the feeling. I think in the last year I've probably been in my home for, uh, I, I don't know, maybe four months. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Because <laughs> we were t- we were trying to connect for maybe two months in right, the last two months, and you you were on the road all the time know, in the middle of nowhere somewhere. Yes. Yeah. I'm like, well, I could try, but you'd probably hear one out of every five words I say. Because, <laughs> but yeah, yeah I, I don't think the podcast listeners would appreciate that because they really want to hear what you have to say. Yeah, it would be it would be a puzzle. It'd be like piecing together a puzzle, kind of a challenge <laughs> in a way that might be annoying. So, but, do you run workshops and stuff for people to learn from you now? So I, I've, you know, I do, and it usually ends up being something where someone's hosting an event and they bring me out, um, to train in a specific regard. So I've, I've been teaching a lot of, uh, friction fire. So bow drill fire lately. And that's kind of just, you know, do I bring a bow drill out with me when I'm going out in the woods? Heck no. Like I'm bringing a lighter and some fire. I love this. Like I don't bring a bow drill and and use that when I'm out, but it's, it's more about the mental aspect of when people are learning to do it. It seems so easy. It's so frustrating. And the mental place it puts people in is simultaneously horrific and beautiful. (laughs) It just makes people think in a different way. And then when you actually work with it, when you commit, stick to it, accomplish it, it becomes this, this whole experience for people that's really cool. And whether or not they ever you know, use it again. It, it doesn't matter. It's not about that. So I've been, 
I've been teaching different people at, at different events and workshops and stuff. I don't run my own workshops per se. I'm, I'm not saying that's something I won't ever do, but it's just, you know, I have so much else going on that the hardest part is committing to a date, having people clear their schedules, and then me being able to commit to that. It's just my life is so, it's so wild right now. I have a real problem with dates, oh. like far, far in the future. And I do anything that I can possibly do to try and avoid committing to something unless it's some sort of incredible trip that I you know, yes. have to get on a plane and go to. And I know that right. it's going to be on a certain date. But if it's a, can you, I don't know, go to a, a party on the 22nd of June, even my birthday, <laughs> like in <laughs> June, which is actually in June, it's not on the 22nd. No. Yeah. <laughs> Can no. you ask me the week before, please? <laughs> That's ex- I, I was so glad scheduling with you that you were like that because I, I don't know. Sometimes people are like, "Can you commit to this one hour four months from now?" I'm like, "What? No, no, no I can't. Like, no, I can't. That's crazy. I next week maybe I'm still going to struggle with it, but you know, it's it's wild to me, and I never know what day it is, which is the other hard thing. Is that I, well? That's the thing. If you're doing something that you enjoy doing every day, I mean, what is a day of the week really? Yeah, I mean, what mean is anything. time? I don't get I mean, days off. Like I, I'm doing things all the time, and it may not look like work to other people, but oddly, it's kind of work for me. And there's no such thing as a weekend, you know. I've always at the check. I'm always like, "Oh, happy weekend, everyone!" I know it means something to you, and then I'm like, "Oh wait, no, it's Monday." Never <laughs> it's because mind. it's because they're not doing the Monday to fr- Friday grind anymore. Right. The weekend, the weekend's like this little glimmer of hope and and people haven't even had that in the last year because at least their routine changed right i remember when i had a boring office job in a city a very beautiful city now that i definitely didn't take advantage of when i lived there but uh it was monday to friday glimmer of survival at the weekend was being able to leave the city yes yeah exactly and that's you know it's it's something i mean it's better than better than nothing. It's not the way I live. I remember, I think I still have trauma from remembering what it was like to have to go to school and having Sunday be the most depressing day on earth because I knew that the next (laughs) day was Monday. And I think there's still a slight happiness when I do realize it's Friday just because of that, you know, distant memory. But (laughs) I can't imagine. I mean, I would be, I would be so miserable right now where I am in my life if I had to, you know, go back to that. that. Yeah. yeah, It's just, the only thing that I do appreciate particularly about a weekend now is that I get less emails and less phone calls of people wanting me for yes, a trip. So totally. it's a quieter two days, although mm-hmm. what I decide to do has nothing to do with whether it's a Saturday or a Monday. I'm yes. deciding what I want to do depending on what I want to do or you know, if I have deadlines or whatever. Uh, but I definitely get disturbed less over yes. a weekend if i if i'm not out in the middle of nowhere if i happen to be at home so that is one major benefit of the weekend it's funny i i started when i whenever i have to do writing i hate being interrupted when i have like a flow going on and so i started writing at like midnight i start at midnight and then i'll write into you know 4 or 5 in the morning and then i know that i'm not going to be bothered and i love taking advantage of those times of like love all right the rest of the world is is sleeping. The rest of the world is not is not going to be bothering me right now. I have this moment to seize, and weekends are kind of like a, a mini version of that. I think. Yeah, I. Funny enough, I actually do quite a lot of writing late at night as well. Not, I can't really do it if it's sort of academic writing because I 
I can't feel, I don't want to feel tired if mm -hmm. I have to really concentrate on something that uh, yeah, is going to be marked. Right, right. <laughs> uh, but if it's something that I can return to, you know, day after day, if I'm writing an article like for Modern Huntsman, uh, then yeah, I, I might only start at, you know, nine, 10 o'clock at night. And I, I don't push it quite as far as you do, but yeah, two o'clock in the morning. After, once I get to about 12, then I know that the bottle of port can be opened. <laughs> Exactly right, and that can that can help. But I do yeah, it lubricates the wheels of thought for sure. It kind of like lets you let down that you know. I think my body, my brain gets in the way of my body and what it's doing. And somehow writing is, I don't know if I'm thinking about it too much. It's like everything else. Like if I'm forcing my brain to do it, then I'm not going to do well. Whereas I just if I let it happen and flow, it it comes out a lot better. Like when I'm learning a new skill, I know that if I'm trying to think about the things I should be doing, I'm going to be terrible at it. Whereas if I can just do it, then that's, that's, that's the sugar. Did I read somewhere that you wrote a book about knives? I did. Um, so I actually, that is so freaking cool. <laughs> I, <laughs> I love that. But and I, well, I think it's freaking cool because I have always had this thing about blades ever since being a kid. And yeah. I think maybe that happens, and this is just because of the construction of the way society is and the way we treat kids, that it's more often that little boys might have this uh, fascination with blades and knives than, than young girls. But And I, I think that is purely just because of the way people are brought up in modern society. Um, but I think that there is something very uh, primal about a fascination with the blade. And I just don't just mean knives, you know, axes as well. For my my graduation present, when I graduated with my undergrad at university, my parents said, oh, you know, congratulations, well done. We want to get you something. What do you want? Get me a hand-forged axe. I've oh. always wanted a hand-forged axe. So that was yes. my graduation present. That's awesome. So I am, I am on the same, same level in terms of appreciation of blades as you, but I definitely don't have the same skills because I've seen some of the stuff of you actually making blades. T tell me about this. Tell me about the book. Yeah. How so this has is, is, this is gathered momentum into what it is now for you. Well, I've always had the same fascination with blades. And I don't know. I think it was just... I don't know. I, I remember from a really young age, I couldn't wait to get my first knife. I remember going to Sears or whatever it was with my dad and getting my first knife and having it. Be we would have been friends as kids, I think. 100%. 100%. <laughs> we would have been writing letters all the time. <laughs> Marked in blood with the latest 100%. knife. 100%. That's exactly how it would have come <laughs> cutting, cutting each other's seals off the letters with yeah, our exactly. hand-forged yeah. knives. Um, exactly. But it was, you know, I think it's this connection to to the history. Like, I love the connection to the generations before us. You know, all of our ancestors used blades of some kind, you know, obviously starting out with stone tools and then transitioning over. But it's something that, I mean, steel changed the entire course of humanity and the blacksmith in town was like, you know, the cornerstone. And so being able to connect with that ancient skill and this this tool that you can hold in your hands that's real and has so many purposes and so many uses and it's just it's very human. I think it's like when you sit someone who's never been around a fire, you sit sit them in front of the fire and they are transfixed on it. It like brings up this really primal thing and blades do the same thing. And for me it was just a natural draw obviously being out in the woods a lot. It was the it's the one thing I'll bring with me if I can bring something. And so 
I had this connection and I first started shooing horses and uh, shooing, not shooting. Everyone always says, wow, you're a monster. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm glad you clarified that point. Yeah. How do you shoot them? Oh, with nails? Like what? <laughs> As we lose all of the listeners on the podcast. I know. Like, apart, from the, apart from the French. Right, <laughs> <laughs> right. But, uh, but no, I, I, so I was blacksmithing and... I, of course you are. Of course, right? <laughs> as, as you do. And, uh, you know, I think the natural progression is like, well, I want to blacksmith a blade. Like, forget these horseshoes. Like, I want to make something I can take out with me. And that was kind of my introduction to knife making. But when I had the um, publisher approach me about the book, originally it was going to be on survival. And then it turned to knife making. And I was honestly scared because I'm like, man, there's so much. I know enough to know what I don't know. And yeah. there's people that are, are so much better, so much more qualified that are, that are living this. It's just something I like to do. And ultimately, it turned out to be kind of perfect for the book because I wrote the book that I wish I'd had when I first started out. And, and that's I, the benefit. That's the right. benefit of being in that place, like being at the bottom mm-hmm. of the Dunning-Kruger curve. Yes. To know enough to know all the things you don't know. That's, yes. There is a lot of value in that, especially when oh, you're trying to explain absolutely. things to other people. And I mean, the great thing is the knife making community is full of so many amazing people that everyone was just ready to jump on board and help any way they could. I actually had been talking to a guy down in Georgia, this knife maker, Paul Brock, and he had never met me, didn't really know who I was and offered to do all the like technical editing of my book. Like as I was writing it, he was actually reading it on Google Docs as I was typing because I had a very short window to write the book in. And it was it was amazing and he just he wanted to help and that's you know how people in the knife making world are and so it was it was great to get to bounce ideas off of people and kind of figure out what i wanted to say but um and i learned a ton in the process but uh it's it's been cool it's it's another one of those things where i'm like all right it was like the show like i'm i'm doing this thing it's going to go out there maybe someone will see it someday but the response from it and the amount of messages from people i get that are like here's a picture of my first knife i got your book and I made my first knife because of it. And thank you so much. It's like, oh my gosh, like you, you got my book. First of all, that's amazing. And second of all, like, I can't believe it. you actually used it to make a knife and, and it, it worked for you. That's so cool. So it's, it's been a really cool thing and knife making something I'm just obsessed with. Obviously I don't live Because you were forging just a couple of last couple of weeks, weren't you? Yeah, totally. So I have a, a good friend, Josh Smith, who, um, who lives about 45 minutes away from me. And Again, had never met him and he, we got connected through friends. He's like, come over, use my shop. And he's like, you know, him and his family, they're like family now. And it's, it's, it's been amazing. So now I have a place I can go and, and make knives when I'm actually around, um, which, you know, it's kind of few and far between, but it's, it's a nice way to break it up, especially winter in Montana. It's like not, you don't always want to. It's pretty long. I've spent a few, a bit of time in Montana in, in the winter and, you know, I live in Scotland, so it's cold and a bit miserable and the days are really short. But the depth of the cold and the length of the winter on Montana, I'm not even sure if I'm tough enough for that. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I know. It's it's definitely um, – I, I first moved here, I think it was 2000 – well, I first visited in 2004 and ended up moving shortly afterwards. And I love – I love the summers here and the winters are definitely coming back to it after being away for so long and in warmer places during the winter. I was like, can I do it? It's the darkness that gets me, you know, and it's just yeah. dark and, and you only have so many hours of light you have to take advantage of. But, um, but it also, I like it because it, it not only makes you work in different ways and, and focus on different things, but 
yesterday was 60 degrees here and the joy you feel after you've gone through a winter the joy of like a hot day. I mean, I had my windows down. I was cranking the music as I was driving. I was like, <laughs> this is, I'm like so ecstatic right now. It was so cool. So I think it's, it's the contrast, you know, it makes it, makes you appreciate it. I like, I think that's one of the benefits of doing jobs like you and I do in this more sort of freelance world is that if you live in a place like Montana or even Scotland, where you do have these big seasonal shifts, mm -hmm. you do have the ability to work with the days. So I know in the middle of winter, when it only gets light at eight and it's dark again at 3.34, I'm going to make use of that tiny window of light. And if that means yeah. I need to go outside and, I don't know, drive my Land Rover, go cut wood in the forest or do something outside and push all of the things that I really should be doing in the more regimented like normal life into the evening, then I do that because why the hell would I want to be doing it when I only have so many hours of light outside, but you don't have that flexibility when you're stuck in a, you know, an eight to five or nine to five. Oh, abs absolutely. I think that's been huge for me because I can still go out. It's the deer are dropping their antlers, as we all know, I'm obsessed with antler hunting and walk my toenails. I hadn't off noticed. It, so I know it's weird, but I, <laughs> I, uh, I love that I can go out right now I can take four hours of my day and just go for a short adventure, whatever, or even use all the daylight hours, come back when it gets dark. And then that's when I start my, my computer work, my emails, my scheduling, all that stuff that I have to be inside for, I can do at night. So, I mean, maybe I'm working at 10, 11 o'clock at night, but I got to have my day and I got to flip it around, whereas most people do the opposite. And I love that freedom because I still get to like, feed those parts of me and I don't have to like sacrifice not being productive with the the things I want to move forward on. So it really is. I, I think that's been one of the silver linings too of COVID is that the more people work remotely, um, I don't know how many people are taking advantage of that, you know, or have the flexibility, but being able to work remotely has definitely changed, I think, people's realities. And I love when I see people getting out more because of this whole pandemic thing. Like how cool is it to take something that is such a negative and to find the good things in it, to find the silver linings and to be able to flip things around and take advantage of it. I mean, it's, there's always, there's always a good part of everything I think is the lesson that, that comes out of that. It can be hard to see it sometimes, but yeah, I agree with you. There are some lessons to be learned about how we live our life and, and what's important. Uh, I was just thinking while well, you were just, prior to this more solemn conversation that we just had in the last few minutes, when you were finishing up telling me about your book, that the next time I'm in Montana, I need to, one, get you to sign a copy of your book, but I want <laughs> it in blood. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> with a seal, for sure. <laughs> with a seal. And secondly, I, I am going to, whatever I need to do, you're going to teach me how to forge a knife if you've got access Please. to a forge. Absolutely. And I'll, I'll drag Tyler along and we can, gonna, we can, we can forge modern huntsman knives. You, he cannot you. do this before me. So <laughs> I'm, gonna, when I, I'm, I'm on the phone to him in 30 minutes. I'm going to make sure. I said, no, look, this is happening, but don't you dare go and do this with Laura before I get oh, to Montana I, again. I am, I am holding you to this because that is honestly one of my favorite things is like having people make their first knives and, and having them realize how incredible it is. It really is. I mean, it, it's so much fun. You guys have to do it. I'm holding you to okay. it. It has to we're, happen. We're going we're gonna to do it. And I'm, because I now understand your lifestyle, and I can appreciate it because I, I have a similar vibe. I'm not really going to hold you to a date. I'll just be there for a period just of time. And at some point, you'll yeah. be, yeah, I'm home. <laughs> Absolutely. No, we're, we're making it happen. 
I will I will put things aside to make that happen. <laughs> I'll even sacrifice now, a couple of days of antler hunting. <laughs> oh well, I, I can't even get back into the U- U.S. now until they drop the drop the ban from people traveling from the U.K. So it's not going to be anytime soon. So you won't have to sacrifice your shed hunting. <laughs> uh, from shed hunting to hunting hunting, yes. It, it, it's probably no surprise to anybody listening to this conversation to this point and the way that you've lived your life and your connection with the outdoors in a very visceral sense that mm-hmm. you hunt as well. Mm-hmm. Yep. Tell, when did when did you actually do that for the first time? Was it I mean was it trapping? Was it killing something with your bare hands? I, I don't know. What, what was your first actual hunting experience? So was it, it, it was it actually roadkill? It, it was actually roadkill because I, I actually started out as a vegan. So I loved animals so much that I thought that the only way to exist in a, in a way that was honoring them was to be a vegan. And it's, it was kind of this whole crazy transition of me realizing what that really meant. And if I was eating strawberries in Massachusetts in the wintertime, where did they come from? You know, how many... You're how a many... biodiversity killer. That's what you are. Well, you right. Exactly. <laughs> I was like, okay, so I'm basically creating all this habitat loss. Like what... What it what did it take for the truck? How many deer did the truck hit to get to the supermarket? Like all these things started messing with me. I went down to South America and saw how many um, acres of land were deforested, not just for cattle, for soy. And I'm like, oh no, like I eat a lot of tofu. Like what's happening? <laughs> and so it just made me really think about the fact that as someone who can't photosynthesize, I'm not a plant. I require these other foods, and when I don't have a connection to those foods, I'm feeling self righteous about this, but does it really make sense? Does it really align? Is this really the best thing I can be doing? And it, it kind of got me to eating roadkill, which I know sounds like a giant leap, but it made sense to me because it was just, it was I've eaten loads of roadkill. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it goes to waste. It was this, this natural progression. And then I realized that, um, you know, kind of the jump to hunting from that was just realizing that if you look at, at what we are as creatures and, you know, being meat eaters, I felt so much better eating meat and I couldn't always rely on roadkill. And, um, I realized that hunting was something that I wanted to experience. I didn't know how it was going to go, but, um, I wanted to, I wanted to experience it. And so I went in college with a professor of mine and, um, he was a traditional bow hunter, built all his own bows. And I went out hunting with him and the experience was like just life changing. I mean, just just understanding kind of the sacrifice that goes to to keep you alive and this whole, you know, without getting too much into it, it was kind of like this spiritual thing for me of being like, oh no, like this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And moving forward, it just I realized that it was the most responsible thing I could do. And it gave me this connection to, you know, like I've talked about just generations before us and our ancestors and it just felt very human and it felt right and understanding that sacrifice made me want to live better and it just kind of changed everything in my world and I was I was hooked I built uh my first bow almost immediately after that we actually went down cut cut hickory tree seasoned the stave and I carved out a bow and and I was in it so I, I you are I, hardcore. I love that. That's like <laughs> jump in. The fa- well, the fact that you actually went and made a bow. Yeah, that so was- you're killing stuff with a bow that you've made and butchering it up with a knife that you've forged. <laughs> I mean, yeah, isn't that everyone's intro to hunting? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. I mean, 
I, I, but I appreciate all the aspects of it. I mean, I, I don't bow hunt because you can't bow hunt here. I've shot a bow and I, I love shooting a bow, but I haven't actually hunt, killed anything with a. Uh, uh, no, no, I haven't killed anything with a bow. I've hunted with a blowpipe and killed stuff with a blowpipe, which That's is also a lot of fun. Amazing. Um, which is you should get yourself a blowpipe if you haven't done much blowpipe work. Percent. A lot of fun. But the closest that I have to that experience of making the bow is when you go fishing and you tie your own flies to go and catch the yes. fish that you're, you're catching. But yeah. having your hands on all the elements that are responsible for you, I was going to say capturing nature for your own benefit, but I would say it's more like embracing nature as part of it. Absolutely. And that's for me really what it is. It's like, existing within it because as anyone who hunts understands when you're when you're out there you have more of an appreciation i mean getting to know getting to hunt brought me into the landscape as an active participant in a way that i understood and saw things differently and actually had more appreciation and respect for the animals whose environment i was in you know wherever i was traveling and whatever i was hunting it's like you really learn an animal in a different way and you really appreciate their lives because you're you're in it more and you're you're existing in that. And so it actually was just, I mean, I, I learned so much. I appreciated things so much more. And I realized that you have to be a part of it. You can't fight against it. And I don't know. I mean, I think it's one of those things where um, I didn't like hunters when I grew up just because I felt like they were so disconnected. And I had this idea that it was all about the ego and just, you know, shooting an animal to brag about to your friends. But I just didn't understand, you know, and most 99% of the hunters that I've encountered, I mean, you always have the 1% that are loud on social media or in, in the public eye that are kind of give hunters a bad name. But most people I know that hunt, they have that understanding and they have that appreciation and respect. And I love that aspect of it because it's something I didn't understand until I was in it. But I also knew that I had a lot to learn. And so just going into it, being open-minded and um, just being willing to kind of go through that whole experience and not place judgment on it, I just realized, you know, all right, I was wrong. You know, for me that it's been incredible to meet other hunters and see how much they understand different landscapes because of what they hunt, you know, and it's, it's cool. It doesn't just have to be people who are out there shooting stick bows. It's like, you know, the guy who's gone out every year in his backyard and, and shot a deer with a rifle, like the way he knows that land is something that a lot of people have missing if they're not out there hunting or they don't have some kind of reason to be out there. So it's, it's really, it's been a cool journey. I love that. And you've echoed so many th- so many of the aspects that I've had conversations with, with with people in the past on the podcast. So it's it's really great to hear that encapsulated in a couple of minutes in the in the experience that you've had. I wanted to, as we kind of get towards the end of this conversation, which I could quite easily do for another hour or two hours with you. <laughs> we need we need to do this around a campfire next time, right? Uh, I'm with, in. with with crackling flames. Um, <laughs> I wanted to do a bit of uh, moral wrestling with you because I know that, or I've heard you talk about uh, persistence hunting before mm-hmm. and that you've done it. So, But explain what that is. And then I want to just dive into a few aspects of this because yeah. it will be something quite unfamiliar to a lot of people. Totally. So basically it's, we're designed to, we're never going to be the strongest. We're never going to be the fastest, but we're designed for endurance. So 
it was something that I didn't think modern humans were still capable of, but just the way our bodies are situated, being upright on two legs, no hair, we sweat, we're able to get really hot and we're able to go for long distances without stopping. So the whole idea of persistence hunting is that our ancestors have have used this before, you know, more modern weapons and before even bows and atlatls and all these things. It was literally a situation where you would run an animal down until the point of exhaustion. And that was how you were able to procure food. And um, it's something I, I was introduced to in Australia with this amazing man named Andrew Eucles and watching him run down feral goats. And I didn't know that it was still something that we could do. And being able to go out there and and experience it myself and realize that you have, you know, as modern humans, we still have that in us it was incredible. And it's, it's not something that is, you know, um, you think about the, the death that you can give something with, with a rifle where it literally has no idea what's going on. And then it's, it's dead within seconds. That's definitely a more, you know, what we would consider a more humane death. But the aspect of, of persistence hunting that's particularly interesting to me is that, you know, you talk about archery kind of leveling the playing field, but when you're literally running an animal down, the mental aspect of that and the, the, you know, just the, the raw primal nature of it is it's intense. It's full on, but it's, you know, it's kind of crazy too. Yeah. It's, I think there is a tribe in Africa, at least one that Mm -hmm. still do it on a regular basis. And I meant to look it up, I uh, look up their name before I recorded with you and I forgot. Uh, so it is something that still, to some extent, a much lesser mm-hmm. extent than it would have done historically, exists in a modern world, but in a very different kind of manner and in a very small facet of society. And it's an interesting thing for me to think about because I spend a lot of time when I'm talking about sustainable use of resources, mm-hmm. in, in particular reference to fish stocks or whether that be sustainable use of uh, wild terrestrial resources through hunting, about challenging perceptions of people who think it's something that shouldn't go on because mm-hmm. of this view that they have of the world of of how hunting, and you alluded to this earlier, about how hunting is cruel and, and it's, mm-hmm. it's inhumane and it's not ethical. And I go through this whole process of, I mean, the, the easiest way for me to articulate it to somebody who doesn't have much knowledge on it is to try and draw parallels with an agricultural system so that they mm-hmm. can, because that is something most people have a reasonable feel of, mm-hmm. so that they can understand the alternatives. And then if there's someone who doesn't eat meat at all, then <laughs> exactly as you pointed out earlier, start to, to really enlighten them as to the realities of everything from biofuels um, to how we get our, our vegetables and the, the true impact of, of grains and vegetables around the world. But when we talk about something like persistence hunting, which is not something many people do, certainly almost no one's doing in the Western world, it kind of it breaks that um, reasoning that it is a a quick ethical death that doesn't affect animal welfare in a negative way, and but in the same breath. If you are embracing nature where there is no 
moral construct about right and wrong, that is exactly how that cycle of life would go on. It is through chase and death. Mm -hmm. And it's just an interesting thing to think about. It is. And it's, you know, I think the thing that you... Is it okay? (laughs) Right. Is it okay? And then understanding the failure level, like you understand the failure level of a lot of predators where you might try for, you know, I don't know, get maybe one out of 50 animals you're trying to get. I mean, the, the, the staggering rate of failure is amazing. Um, and the appreciation, I mean, I, I don't think it would be a sustainable thing if every single person in the world was practicing persistence hunting right now. Like clearly we're at a level where that's not exactly a practical thing for sustainability. And I think it's more, you know, it's about that just appreciation. I mean, you're never going to appreciate going shooting with, you know, or going hunting with a gun unless as much as someone who's gone out and tried persistence hunting, you know, and it's like, it's not necessarily something that's, you know, I think everyone should necessarily do all the time, obviously, but knowing what we are as humans, what we're capable of, what we've gone through as a species, I think it just all comes back to that appreciation and respect and the understanding that you get. Because I think it's really easy to not want to protect, I mean, the word conservation has been really watered down, but the whole conservation idea and being able to maintain healthy populations. When you're out there interacting with animals and whether it's through hunting or you know any, any means of hunting, being out there, you're going to understand those populations and the dynamics that are involved to such a greater level because it's real. You relate to it. You're in it. You see how it is, not just from a scientific perspective, but from a day-to-day how it plays out out there. So just anything that's getting people out, understanding, connecting them. And, you know, I think that's when you really have a well-rounded way of, you know, approaching being able to maintain viable populations and understanding then, you know, extrapolating from that morally what, what, what can be done and then what that looks like as far as a sustainability um, practice. So it's, to me, it's just about that, that connection and, and a really broad scope of, of understanding. Laura, thank you so much for this amazing view on life and, and life story. And you've given me, and I'm sure the listeners, a, a lot to really grapple with and think about, especially towards the end of our conversation. Uh, and that's what these conversations are all about, is to make us think and, and maybe see the world or appreciate the world in a slightly different way. You know, whether we necessarily agree with what somebody has said or not, if it just makes us think more, then I think I've achieved the goal on this show, which is to make people think. I love it. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And I I can't wait to uh, sit around a fire, drink beer and forge knives with you in Montana. I'm really excited. That's happening. Thanks so much, Laura. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you.